upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw and Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go, or what? This is a uh, special visitor to Hardcore Legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't beat beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that, and every kid up, they knew they could kick shit out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of Feature match in just a moment. The wrestlers are entering the ring, and we'll be introducing them. Okay, fans, in this uh, feature event, we have from New Hampshire at 220 pounds, Dan Petty, Dan Petty, and his opponent from Dublin, Ireland at 240 pounds, Davey O'Hannon, Davey O'Hannon. The referee, uh, the referee checking the wrestler. O'Hannon certainly looks like, a, I've never seen O'Hannon before. Sam, I've seen uh, Davey O'Hannon many, many times over the years, and O'Hannon, without a doubt, is one of the most colorful characters, and I do use that word, character, to ever get in the ring. You'll see some very strange, some very odd tactics used by Davey O'Hannon. He really is a, a real number. A lot of flash, a lot of showmanship, but he gets tough, and he gets the job done. Okay, the match is on the way. And uh, they're both against the ropes. Both men being very cautious here. There's uh, an overhand wrist lock by the powerful O'Hannon. He puts the... Oh! And uh, Don Petty, Dan Petty's... Oh, man. 
Petty trying very hard to get back, but he's been hurt, but he's courageous. Oh, man, another big one to that side of the... Oh, look at Petty coming back. I don't think those punches are bothering O'Hannon too much. There's a kick. Now he may be in trouble. He's thrown into that turnbuckle. Oh, man. Right in the throat with a foot. Right in the throat. Watch this now. It's the... Oh, dropped him in a neck breaker. A pile driver hold. In many states, a pile driver hold is illegal. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the match was uh, Davey O'Hannon. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the flagship interview series, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. I am J.P. John Paz, and today's episode is with Irish Davey O'Hannon. Yes, Davey is from the very, very memorable WWWF days, ran by none other than Vince McMahon Sr. in that Northeast Territory. Davey O'Hannon was a big, big fixture there and a big star. And if you went to those shows or were a part of the Northeast crowd in those days, went to Madison Square Garden, went any of those big Northeast towns, you are very, very familiar with Davey O'Hannon in that Vince Sr. era. If you kind of look at that era, look at all those guys and, and what they thought of themselves, they were all equals. And they all thought of themselves to that. There was the, that way in the locker room. There was no egos. Bruno was was just as equal as Davey, who's just as equal as Dominic Danucci and Pedro Morales and, and Bob Backlund and all those guys. I mean, they all kind of stuck together and were very, very ego-free, I guess you could say. There was no ego with those guys. They were all equals. And we talked about it in the interview. Dave Yohannan hates the, kind of the term jobber or enhancement guy or carpenter or whatever you want to call it. He does not appreciate that term. He does not uh, care for that term at all. They were all equals. They were all men on their own, standing on their own. They were all wrestlers. None were better than the other, technically speaking, maybe in, in the crowd's eyes, but not in the wrestlers' eyes themselves. So through this interview, obviously, we will talk about Vince Sr. We will talk about Bruno, like I just mentioned, and, of course, Dominic Danucci, Baron Michael Cicluna, High Chief Peter Maivia. We'll go Ivan Putsky, Gorilla Monsoon, Chief Jay Strongbow, Kelly Green, and then, of course, we will get into Vince McMahon Jr., and the sports entertainment era and how that all kind of changed the business and kind of changed it for him and where he went and what he was doing and what he's doing today, quite frankly. So we do talk about his entire career. We'll go into the Western states a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about NWA Texas and, and things of that nature. We'll definitely go into a few different categories and a few different things concerning wrestling, but maybe go into more modern day and more international pro wrestling hall of fame and things like that. So really, I think you're going to really enjoy this. If you're an old school wrestling fan, I think you're really, really going to enjoy this. And if you're a hardcore fan, I think you will definitely love it as well. And I don't want to talk too much and go crazy because this interview is of pretty good length. I mean, we definitely over an hour or so, and it was definitely a great chat. But before I kind of get into the two man power trip wrestling business and pass it on over to the interview, I do want to talk about some other things that's going on on in the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire we've got rick bassman's talking tough over on podcast one we've got the university of dutch yes the dutch mantel show over on the mlw radio network we've got the franchise shane douglas his triple threat podcast over on vince russo's the brand and of course 
on our channel, on our Podomatic, on our platform, we have Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard, which is an awesome, awesome show with Dr. Tom. So I highly you know, implore you guys to check out each and, one of, each and every one of our shows on all of our platforms as Two Man Power Trip is trying to take over this podcasting world and we're really kind of spreading the wealth. So really, really great stuff. And I highly, highly suggest that you check us out on all of those platforms and check out all of those shows. So right now, let's pass it on over to the former WWF superstar, Irish Davey O'Han. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip and at Razzlin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit JJ Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And now, without any further ado, former NWA Texas Brass Knuckles champion, former NWA Western States Tag Team champion, former WWWF superstar, here's Irish Davy O'Hannon. Please enjoy. is a former NWA Texas Brass Knuckles champion, a former NWA Western States Tag Team champion, and of course, you probably know him from being a former WWWF superstar. He is Irish Davey O'Hannon. Davey, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, heard a lot about you guys, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that, considering somebody with your uh, great resume. So that's awesome to know. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, as far as your career, I mean, there's so many different things. But I think when first somebody says Dave Yohannan, they always think of the WWWF. And that, that's just like a natural thing and the Irish superstar and stuff like that. But how did you end up in the crazy world of the WWF at that time? Because, or excuse me, WWWF at that time. Yeah, well, I... I... I always uh, wanted to be a wrestler. There's nothing uh, else in my life that I wanted to do. Uh, from being a little kid, that was my uh, 
my dream, <clears throat> my goal. And, uh, you know, I, I watched uh, the legends. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, so I got to watch what we call New York TV. Uh, and I, I watched the, the old uh, Capitol Wrestling, and uh, back then it turned into the WWWF. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just set my sights on that. Uh, I went to school in Missouri, uh, which is NWA territory. And, uh, you know, I just I just did everything I could to get uh, in the business. I, uh, you know, back then there were no wrestling schools. Uh, it was a very, very closed uh, kind of shop. You, know, you didn't you didn't just walk up and uh, knock on somebody's door and say, "Listen, I want to apply to be a professional wrestler." Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, the business was uh, very protected, and uh, so you know, I just uh, I'd go to the matches and I I bugged the promoters and uh, got to know a few of them, and uh, uh, you know, little by little, I just kind of watched what was going on. Uh, you know, I had a wrestling background anyway. You know, I knew how to wrestle. Uh, and when I went to school in Missouri, uh, again, I was exposed to the NWA, uh, which is uh, a world of difference from uh, WWWF. And, uh, you know, I finally got my shot uh, in the Kansas City Territory. That's uh, where I had my first matches. NWA Western States, right? Well, well the Western States was Texas. Uh, the Kansas City Territory was, uh, was an NWA Territory. But like like most of the you know Texas was also NWA, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Kansas City was a territory uh, in and of itself. Uh, you know you went to Iowa, uh, you know Kansas, Kansas City, Colorado. Uh, you know the NWA NWA is really really big. You know mm-hmm. they cover they covered everything uh, that the WWF didn't cover and uh, whatever uh, Vern up in the AWA didn't have. Uh, NWA was all over. NWA was was actually the the, the biggest organization uh, as far as territory went. Now, as far as like kind of gaining ground and being in uh, Kansas City and, and in that point as you're kind of making your way through, how do you kind of you know get noticed and how, how do you kind of make a name for yourself? Well, you know what? And again, back then uh, you didn't have social media. Uh, and and you were really lucky uh, if they let you in the business. Uh, so you know my first few matches uh, in uh, the Kansas City territory. I mean my first match was uh, was against a fellow named Joe Scarpello. Uh, and you know so many of the fans now, uh, because of the social media, sort of know the lingo that we used to protect and and didn't speak of in, in front of fans, but. Uh, you know, I wasn't smartened up. I, I didn't know the difference between working and shooting. I was a shooter because I was an amateur wrestler. Uh, so my first match was against a guy named Joe Scarpello in Sedalia, Missouri, uh, not knowing what was going on. Uh, I got in there, uh, but I had heard some lingo, and so I said to him, uh, what are we doing? Are, are we shooting or are we working? I Keep in mind, I didn't know what work meant. I I just heard somebody say it, so I thought I'd be really cool and say this, and you know, and I just got done playing football. I was big, uh, I was just under six feet. I was about 265 and in pretty good shape. Uh, the referee was a guy that uh, wound up being a good friend of mine named Ronnie Etchison, 
so when I said to Joe Scarpella, what are we doing uh, shooting or working, uh, Ronnie Etchison had a really gravelly voice. sounded like he had an ice skate stuck in his throat. And he, he said, oh, Christ. <laughs> uh, that was a bad sign for me. Yep. Uh, and Joe, Joe Scarpella wasn't a big guy. Joe Scarpella was about 5'8", about 210 pounds. Uh, the, the only part that I didn't know was he was a former NCAA and AAU champion. Uh, this guy could give you a wrestling lesson with his eyes closed. And uh, he said to me, just take your best hold, kid. Well, I'm not sure I had a best hold at that point. Uh, but but he just lit me up. He didn't hurt me. Uh, he let me know on uh, several occasions that he could have hurt me. Uh, so you know, I, I wasn't getting noticed that night. Uh, two days later, I worked on uh, Kansas City TV, which they did up in St. Joe, Missouri. Uh, and I worked with a guy... Uh, who your fans uh, and listeners might know his name. It was Lou Fez. Oh, my God, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, that's that's pretty much what I said when it was over. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, so Lou Fez was a, not for me, but he was, he was uh, real serious about our business, real serious, and he was a hooker. He was a hooker. He could really hurt you, and... Uh, but what he did was he respected someone who was an athlete uh, that knew how to wrestle. So luckily I could protect myself. And, uh, you know, I worked a TV match with Luthez, you know, and, and we, don't, uh, we all know what happened there. Uh, I did what I had to do and uh, just made sure I lived uh, through the six minutes that it was on. And, and then the, <laughs> the two, two nights later, uh, I worked with Danny Hodge. Wow. Yeah. Wow, is right. Danny Hodge is is a legend. If you know anything about wrestling, uh, Danny Hodge is the gold standard. You know, there's an amateur wrestling award named the Hodge Award. That says it all. So, so you, I wasn't getting noticed, uh, but as I uh, worked a little bit more and watched, which was really important uh, in that point in the business, you had to you watch what was going on and. You know, if you could steal a little move from somebody and, and see what was happening. Uh, so I did, you know, and, and uh, I felt lucky. Uh, I was coming home for a vacation uh, from college, and uh, the promoter in Kansas City asked me if I'd like to get booked on the way home, and I did. Uh, and uh, he booked me in Columbus, and in Columbus uh, I tore up uh, a little girl's autograph book and got noticed. And I said, oh, okay, that's how you become a heel. You let all these people see it. And, you know, little by little, I, I, I kind of learned my trade. I found it much easier to be a heel than I did to be a baby. And, uh, you know, that's what you did. And to get noticed, you, you have to get noticed by your peers first. You have to get noticed by your peers first because uh, whoever you're working with could either – uh, make you or break you. The, you know, if if they didn't want you to look good, or if somebody didn't want you to look good, uh, then you can't get noticed. You, you'll get noticed actually, but it'll be in the wrong way. Right. It'll be in the wrong way. So you just had to, you had to work every single night. You had to work every single night. Uh, 
and and you never you never and and this is not a knock on independent guys because uh, I really don't pay much attention to any wrestling now, but I've seen some videos uh, of things. Well, you you never you never got in the ring, grabbed a microphone, you know, jumped up on that second rope and and tried to work the crowd. No, you were a wrestler. You were a wrestler. You had to go in the ring. Uh, your goal uh, was to win an athletic event. That's what you were doing. And you didn't win an event by screaming at the fans, uh, by hopping on a table, uh, by you know standing on the ropes and, and doing this stuff. I mean, you know, if it works for you now, but I don't see a lot of those independent guys making a, a, a decent living doing that. Uh, you know, and that's not a knock. Like I said, if that's fun and you want to do it, uh, it's just uh, not what guys like me used to call wrestling. Definitely not. Times have changed yeah, dramatically, have. or dramatically and, and drastically have, have changed for sure. So as you're kind of you know making your way up, and and you're saying you tore the autograph book of the kid, which is just classic heel stuff. I mean that's great, and you get yeah. noticed. Like, what's the next step after you get noticed? Where do you go from there? Well, you, you establish yourself with your peers. And, and one of the really important things is that, you know, understand how a dressing room used to be. Everybody in the dressing room was equal. And, and that's the other thing I see some of the fans now. In fact, somebody asked me a question not too long ago. Well, you know, in a dressing room, uh, was it kind of split up with the guys working on top? in one spot and the middle guys and the tags and this. No, it was just, we were just, just professional wrestlers. Uh, So you had to have a a good attitude and the way to start working up is to have that attitude. And one of the things that was, was uh, really important and it was sort of like a test that the old timers did. They'd watch your match if you were a new guy. And when you'd come in the dressing room, Somebody might say to you, hey, kid, uh, would you mind if I gave you a little constructive criticism? Now, if you had any answer but please do, absolutely yes, please, uh, you weren't going to go too far. So that's how you started. And then when you got comfortable and those old timers got comfortable with you, don't forget, you, you you were exposed to guys that were in all these different territories and somebody might say to you hey you know what don't stay here in kansas city you know let me make a call for you and send you to amarillo or let me make a call and send you to minneapolis and that's how you started getting yourself established that's how you started getting yourself established and you know that's how it went for me i went from kansas city uh i came to new york which for a new guy was really really sort of an anomaly that didn't happen too often but i was lucky because i was big and i knew how to wrestle and and the the guys here treated me really well uh the captain uh was here and he, he took me by the hand into uh vince mcmahon and said i want you to book this kid you know so that was great for me it was lou talking for me i was close with freddie and i was close with the whiz uh and so many guys you know so many guys uh uh, really helped me out, and that's how you got yourself around, and that's how you got to different territories. And of course, you mean the Grand Wizard, obviously Classy Freddie Blassie, and Captain Lou Albano. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Lou was the first one. I mean, Arnold Scolan actually gave me my first booking in New York, 
but the captain took me into Vince Senior at TV and said, "Come with me." And uh, he said, "Vince, he says this this is a good boy. <laughs> I want you to book him." Well, Lou didn't know. <laughs> Lou only saw me work once or twice. But you know that was the attitude thing. If if you were a stand up guy and you you just kind of minded your business, uh, you had to you had to be uh, the kind of guy that had a personality that if they were going to give you a rib or or, or kind of work on you a little bit, you had to go with it. You had to go with it. If if you kind of if you looked like you had a a bit of a uh, uh, an obstinate streak to you, man, your life was misery. Hmm. So what was it like meeting Vince Senior at that point? Was it intimidating at all? Well, yeah, you know what? I uh, at that point, at that point, I was just I was you know hoping to get booked and and learn more about the business. Uh, he was Vince Senior was a really good guy. Uh, he was a very sophisticated guy, and he was a, a, a tremendous businessman. And he actually said to me, "You sure you want to do this?" I said, yeah, there's nothing I want to do more. There's nothing I want to do more. Uh, so, no, I wasn't intimidated by that because, you know, don't forget, I was already an athlete, and I was already used to being in front of people. And for a lot of people or a lot of guys in the business, when they first started, that was the intimidating part. You know, I loved being in front of a crowd, just loved it. You know, whether it was the garden or uh, or a little building, it didn't matter to me. Uh, it was great. So no, Vince wasn't intimidating, and you know, don't forget, he wasn't the guy you dealt with on a day-to-day basis. You dealt with the agents that were uh, in the building every night. So it was somebody different every night, you know, depending on what towns you were in. So who were the agents back then? Arnold Scolan was obviously one of them, and then who else? Ma- Arnold Scolan, uh, Gino, who was Gorilla Monsoon, uh, Angelo Savoldi. Uh, Oh, geez. You know, depending on, you know, where you went, uh, you know, certain guys had their certain areas. You know, if you were up in New England, you had to deal with Angelo every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arnold had stuff here in New York. Uh, Gino uh, would be uh, more south and then into Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania, uh, stuff like that. You know, and, and uh, you know, and they all had their different personalities. Gino, who I was really close with, he, he was a very dear friend. Uh, uh, you know, but he was a good businessman, and he would tell guys, "Hey, listen, uh, you're not here an hour before the show starts." And he said, "I'm not getting an ultra about it. You're just not going to be working here anymore." You know, he was like that. Uh, Angelo uh, was a real easy guy to deal with. You know, you had to be there. You know, Arnold. Arnold was a, when I say party. You know, we, we weren't out with uh, noisemakers and party hats. But Arnold was a, Arnold was a great guy. He treated me right. You know. Uh, uh, you know, and, and there were always personal, not conflicts, but, you know, at some point uh, when you're really comfy in the business, you know, you could say to a booker or an agent, hey, listen, you know, I don't I don't think this is right to do this. Uh, I probably did that too often and kind of shot myself in the foot. You know, when I think about it now, I just wish uh, that I was a little, I handled the business a little differently. Uh, but, you know, I don't have any complaints about that. I got to to go all over. I worked with people that uh, were absolute legends, uh, and lucky for me that I, I even got to work with guys that I watched as a little kid on television, got to be 
my peers and my friends. And that was uh, something that I can never replace. And the thing was about the WWF at that point was ethnicity was big and different guys were over with different segments of the oh, population. Yeah. Like obviously, you know, you're over huge with the Irish fans. Ivan Putsky, who my dad was a huge fan of because we're Polish, was, you know, he's, my dad's a big Ivan Putsky guy, and he was the Polish sure. contingent. And Pedro Morales had his fans. And obviously Bruno, for the most popular guy, had his Italian fans. Is that really the, the key was different sectors of different fans would cheer for their oh, ethnicity? Well, the New, yeah, the New York Territory was, was built on that. The New York Territory was built on that, and that's why they were so successful. You know, because of the diversity and the, 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 the large population in New York. And when I say New York, I mean the territory. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, it was fantastic. So so if you worked in the garden, I mean, the garden was kind of a different place because they liked, uh, you know, Bruno drew there and Pedro drew there and, uh, you know, Victor Rivera was good there. Uh, but if you went, if you went to, eh, Pick one, Scranton. You went to Scranton, Putsky was over. Putsky was great in Scranton. You know, if you went out to, uh, uh, you know, up in New England, uh, Putsky was over. But, you know, a guy like Bruno was, was over all over the place. Uh, you know, Calhoun, Calhoun was a gimmick. Everybody liked him. Everybody liked him. Uh, but the, the ethnicity uh, was a really big key for the success in, in the New York Territory. Now, talk about your fans, the Irish fans. I mean, so many people remember you kind of, you know, wearing the Kelly green, being that, that quote-unquote Irish guy. And I know, obviously, you know, they had Pat Barrett in and out of there as well. But what about your fans? Well, you know what? Uh, here, I'm going to let a little secret out that, that for a long time even Vince McMahon didn't know. I'm half Italian. So, oh. <laughs> so yeah, how about that? So, so. Uh, yeah, the Irish people. But see, I was a heel, and I never stepped out of character. I never stepped out of character. Uh, so even the Irish fans uh, would get pissed off at me. You know, why can't you be nicer? And, you know, we, we did a little uh, thing, uh, Irish Pat Barrett and I mm-hmm. uh, yep. did did it all over the territory. And I used to say to him, well, I guess you're the one they like, you know. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know what? That's another thing. I watched Pat Barrett as a kid. He was one of my favorite wrestlers, hmm. and and then I worked all over with him. Then I worked all over with him. But the but the Irish people, uh, uh, you know, they didn't like me either. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. They were definitely more into Pat Barrett, and that that's one of those. Feuds, I think a lot of people remember is, like you said, you guys traveling all over the territory. Was that one of the also things that made it successful? That it's not just Bruno at the top; every guy could hold their own. Oh well, yeah, yeah. See, and and New York is also unique in that, unlike any other territory, uh, New York sometimes because they'd have three shows a night, would put guys in the ring that. And, and, you know, just don't misunderstand me, uh, uh, but I really protected our business, and I, I was really serious about it. Never did a cartoon. We didn't do that stuff. Uh, we used to have a – we'd say, don't make a joke about what I do for a living. Uh, but what Vince would allow is to just throw anybody that got themselves a pair of tights 
and a, and a pair of shoes in the ring. So that that was unique to the New York territory. And, and again, I won't mention names, but there were guys that you might see on New York TV. The only reason they were there was to get squashed. Right. Was to get squashed. Uh, you know, and if they didn't know their place, then somebody squashed them. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky that I can say that, you know, I was never in that position. You know, even working with Andre, even working with Andre, I was never in that position. Uh, you know, we knew what Andre did when it finally got to, got to be time. You know, right, I was, right. But, but there were guys in the New York territory uh, that were there just to be embarrassed or be squashed. <clears throat> that happened nowhere else that I had ever been. And I, and I was in a lot of territories. I never saw that happen. If you got in the ring, let me tell you, man, if you, if you worked for Eddie Graham in Florida and, and you made a joke of this business, bet your life the next night you'd be working with Bob Roop hmm. or you'd be working with Nelson Royal. And let me tell you something, might be the end of your career right there. You know, it might be the end of your career right there. Yeah, legit uh, shooters right there. Oh, my God. Bob Roop's a killer. Bob Roop's a killer. Bob Roop could tie in nuts. You know, and he was serious about our business. You know, so, so if somebody was exposing us and really didn't care about it, wow, you were in a dangerous spot. That never happened in New York. I mean, I saw guys get beat up in New York because they had a bit of an attitude about them. But uh, in the other places, you know, if you called yourself a professional wrestler, you better be a wrestler. You better be a wrestler. You know, it, it, was, it was really, it was really, unique. New York was a unique place, man. And no doubt about it. Uh, no other place like it. That's uh, that's that's definitely for sure. Yep. Yep. As far as far as all those guys that I mean, we're talking about top guys. When you first like kind of come in and, and you're really working with like guy like Dominic Danucci, who hopefully everybody would remember nowadays, absolute legend. Trained Shane Douglas and Mick Foley and countless other just huge legends. Yep. What did you think about working with Dominic? Oh, Dominic's a hard now. Dominic, actually, I was just on the phone with Dominic this morning. Oh my God! Uh, yeah, Thanks. yeah, we're very, we're very close friends. We're very Thanks. close friends. We talk every week. Uh, Dominic was a tough guy to work with because he was he was all arms and legs, and he he had very much a European style. He was a great worker in the business. He was a great worker, but if you were a heel like I was, you had to really take over on Dominic. You really had to take over. And, and, you know, a good heel kind of ran the match. And you didn't let a baby face make his comeback until it was time. And that's something you learn uh, to do. Uh, but Dominic was a tough guy to work with, but he was so popular. He was so popular, the heel didn't have to do too much. The heel didn't have to do too much. You know, Dominic... Uh, Dominic could could make a broomstick look like a million dollars. So it was great. It was great to work with Dominic. 
Yeah, I was just talking to Shane Douglas recently about him and how uh, hopefully a lot of fans still remember him because in his day, huge star. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, and uh, you know what? He, he uh, certainly, certainly is remembered by the what I call the real wrestling fans. You know, the real wrestling fans are the ones uh, that – you know, I, I think I think you might call them from the golden age. Yeah. Uh, you know, and again, that you know, that's that's not an ego trip for me. Uh, but I, I don't watch wrestling now. You know, I, I couldn't tell you who was who. Uh, couldn't tell you what was going on. Uh, but it, it, see, the real wrestling fans were the people that were invested in what we did. That that. We we gave them a chance to kind of suspend their disbelief, and and we never never broke character like you do now. So so it, it was so different then. You know, Dominic. Here I'll, I'll give you just an example of something that that would go on in in like a Florida a Florida territory. If you walked into a restaurant in Florida and you were a heel and Mike Graham was in there or any one of the other baby faces were in there. If you didn't turn around and walk out, leave the building, you were fired. You were fired. You, 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 you never, you never were in the same place uh, as the guy that you were uh, possibly going to have as an opponent you just never did that so so the fans and that was you know i apologize that was a long way around uh, the answer to the question the fans remember dominic and and they remember bobo and they remember calhoun and they remember bruno and pete sanchez manny soto johnny rods they remember these guys because they were so invested in the fans were so invested in what these guys presented to them that it was special. So it never went away. So many great names too. You just mentioned like Rods and Soto and Sanchez. Oh my God. Kind of underrated legends. Like you said, like a part of the golden era. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I said, somebody said to me, see the other thing that, that really kind of gets my knickers in a twist. Uh, and again, I, you know, I'll read it once in a while. I go on Facebook. Uh, so, basically to, to see which of my friends have died lately, uh, unfortunately. Uh, that's how I keep up. But uh, so many of the, the fans now will say, well, wasn't this guy a jobber then? <laughs> mm. that, I'd, li- I'd like you to get in the ring with Johnny Rods and say that to him. Or, or get in the ring with Mike Sharp, rest his soul, and say that to him. You see, because we never use that terminology. We never use that. That was that wasn't even a consideration. We were we were just wrestlers. That's all. That's all. You know, uh, in a dressing room, it might be uh, me uh, sitting next to Bruno, or Bobby Backlund, or or whoever, whoever. I mean, I remember as a new guy in the business, I was sitting in the Philadelphia Arena, and Bruno came in. Now listen, I was I was at the Garden when Bruno beat Buddy Rogers as a fan. 
Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to watch television and cry if something happened with Bruno. So here I am sitting in the uh, uh, dressing room, and, you know, etiquette uh, is that when you walk into a dressing room and you don't know somebody, you walk over and you introduce yourself. So I was sitting there. You know, I didn't know all the rules yet. And Bruno walks over to me and sticks his hand out, and he says, Hey, kid, uh, Sam Martino. So I looked at him and went, oh, yeah, I know. Hmm. He said, "He said your name is I know. No, 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 my name's not I know. It's, my name's <laughs> Davey. You know, I, I said, you're Bruno. He said, well, that I know. He said, <laughs> so I used to joke with him. You know, we'd be in the car and he'd say, ah, I'd say, listen, you don't get it. You're Bruno. <laughs> hmm. You're Bruno. You don't, you don't catch on, Bruno, you have, what things are like. Yeah, for for us for us uh, common folk, <laughs> yeah. So so, you know, when people say, "Oh yeah, he," you know, they'll say, "Oh yeah," at the end of Dominic's career, he was a jobber, or or Mike Cicluna was a jobber. Oh yeah, get in a ring with Mike Cicluna, see if you'd like one of his size seventeen feet in your rear end. You call him a jobber, you know. <laughs> Crazy. And Bruno, going back to him for a second, uh, obviously Baron Michael's a legend, but Bruno, no ego, huh? No, nothing at all. Oh, my God. You know, he, he, was, he was such a dear, dear friend to me. Uh, uh, I miss him. I mean, if I, if I look at a picture of him too much, I still get choked up. Uh, we, I was on the phone with J.J. Dillon uh, and, uh, Christmas morning. Well, I used to spend an hour every Christmas morning on the phone with Bruno. Bruno had no ego, none, none. And that's why I used to joke with him about it. I used to say to him, you're Bruno. He'd say, ah, come on, I'm just one of the boys, just one of the boys. He put himself out on a limb so many times to help guys. Uh, I saw him stand up to promoters and say so-and-so is not making enough money. Why aren't you paying this guy? Bruno didn't have to do that. Bruno didn't have to do that. Uh, we were on a flight once. They finally started giving Bruno first-class tickets. And, you know, a few of us were sitting, sitting uh, in coach, and Bruno came and apologized. He said, I'm sorry, guys. This is the ticket they gave me. What? <laughs> You're the champ, man. You're the champ. He was he – was, I'm going I'm to tell you what kind of character – Bruno San Martino had. If if we were in a restaurant and and it was way after we were both done wrestling that I actually sat at tables with Bruno, but because of our kayfabe we never did that. But Bruno, if he was in a restaurant and there were kids in the restaurant with their parents at a, at different tables, Bruno would not have a glass of wine with his dinner on the table. And he'd he'd say nope, nope. There's kids here, not having that, not having it, and and wouldn't put it on the table. Wow. He was he was the the most honest, and and uh, his character was was stellar was stellar, and he was a really true blue friend. Uh, he he couldn't stand if somebody uh, was dishonest with him. If somebody lied to him, 
Dominic and I used to used to joke and say, "Oh, I guess he got scratched out of the address book." <laughs> yeah, he sure did. <laughs> he sure did. You know, he was he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, you know, I look at a picture of uh, Dominic, myself, and Bruno uh, that that somebody took. Well, we must have posed for it because we were all dressed up for a change. But uh, at Dominic's daughter's wedding. And I look at it, you know, and it was it was a happy time. And uh, I look at Bruno, and it just, uh, you know, Bruno was the kind of guy that none of us ever thought would be gone. Never thought he'd be gone. Yeah, he's an immortal. Yes, true, yeah. true living legend. He's an immortal. That's correct. That's correct. Unbelievable guy. Sent me to sent me to Japan for my first trip. Sent me to Japan for my first trip. I was, uh, we were both working in the uh, Westchester County Center in White Plains, uh, and uh, I was I was actually sitting next to him on the bench in the dressing room, and I came in. I had just gotten a contract to go to India. The promoter was out in the hallway, and Bruno says, "What's that?" I said, "Oh man, this guy here from India." I said, "Look at this. He gave me a contract." I said, I'm going to sign it. Bruno said, well, a contract for what? I said, well, I'm, I'm going over. Now, we're talking about in the 70s. We're talking about in the 70s, this was. I said, I'm going to go over to India. Bruno went, India? I said, Bruno, the guy's giving me 8000 a week plus expenses. And so Bruno said, give me that contract. I said, here, I took a look at it. He said, did the guy out in the hallway tell you that you have to spend that eight thousand a week in India before you leave. You can't take the money home. He said, "Are they paying you in American dollars?" I said, "Oh, I never asked that question." <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. Sitting right there, Bruno tore the contract in half. He said, "Where are you tomorrow?" I said, "I don't know, Baltimore, wherever the hell I was. I don't know where I was going to be." He said, "Call me at home tomorrow." He said, "You go to Japan." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." He said, you're going to go to Japan for four weeks. I called him the next day. He said, okay. He said, listen, uh, in two days you're going to get a call uh, from a guy named Joe Higuchi, who was uh, the Baba the Giants' right-hand man. Uh, and uh, Joe Higuchi uh, called me up and booked me for my first trip in Japan for four weeks. It was great. All Bruno. All Bruno. That's awesome for all Japan, all Japan pro wrestling in Japan. That's great under Giant Baba. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What was your experience like out there? I know obviously you wrestled the Destroyer out there, which is a huge, huge name, especially in wrestling. But in Japan, what was your experience like out there? No, it was you know for me again. I was a relatively new guy. This was this was either late '73 or '74. So so my first question before I even left. To Bruno was, I said, "Hey, am I going to be able to handle this? I mean, am I am I good enough?" He said, "Well, you know how to wrestle, right?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Then just work hard." So, uh, so I did. And uh, Joe Higuchi was also the referee, uh, English-speaking guy. He was a wonderful guy that took care of the boys when they came over. Uh, and uh, Joe Higuchi would lean down during your match and say, keep going, come on, come on, faster, faster. You know, uh, he'd keep you going. Uh, I worked with uh, Jumbo Saruta, t- 
Tommy Cerruti yeah. many, many times. Yep. Uh, and, and all the guys that were on their roster over there. And, and two weeks into the trip, you know, and it was really a contract you signed. You know, it's not the... You know, it's not a work like you see sometimes uh, used to see on television where, you know, we're signing a contract for a match. This was a contract that had uh, uh, all kinds of clauses, how you behaved, how you dressed, uh, all the rules. And about two weeks in, Joe Higuchi said to me, uh, Davey, he said, come with me. The boss wants to see you. Oh, crap. Now what did I do? You know, because on that tour, on that very first tour, uh, beside me was Mark Lewin, Wahoo McDaniel, King Curtis, Dick Murdoch, and Danny Miller. Now, let me tell you something. These guys were like an all-night gas station. <laughs> it, there was always something going on. Right. There was this. This. This was a crew of guys that a new guy like me should not have been exposed to. But I was, <laughs> and and they were changing my life in two weeks here. So so Joe Higuchi says to me, "Come with me. The boss wants to see you." I said, "Oh crap! Now what did I do?" You know, Danny Miller was working as uh, this is when uh, I don't know. He was working with a mask as the Blue Shark, I think. And I remember Danny Miller and I walking uh, through the hotel in the, the Tokyo Ginza or Tokyo Plaza hotel and Danny Miller's pants fell off. Uh, he didn't have a belt. Down to his knees in the middle of the afternoon, I said, oh, great. This is not good. So I get called to the office and uh, Mr. Baba was there and picked up my contract and tore it in a bunch of different pieces. And I said, oh, no. I'm going home. And Joe Higuchi must have seen me getting all red and, and embarrassed and nervous and he said, no, Davey, Davey, he said, uh, he likes your work. He's giving you a $400 a week raise. I said, whoa, really? That never Thanks. happened to me before. Only, you know what, just because you worked hard, you had to work hard. You had to work hard with those guys there every night. Uh, because the Japanese guys, you know, that was their national sport, man. They were serious about it. They were serious about it. So, so I got to travel all over Japan, all over Uh I got to see things that, uh, that I would have never seen. Uh, I got to meet other people. Vern Gagne had come in uh, for a couple of shots while I was there. Uh, so I got to meet Vern. Uh, and, I, you know, again, I worked with all the Japanese guys. I tagged with guys that I watched as a kid. I tagged with Wahoo. You know, I tagged uh, with Dick Murdoch, who, you know, who they, you know, they became close friends of mine. Uh, and, you know, we were in territories together. Uh, but, you know, could you imagine me as a kid uh, watching the old WWWF being able to say that Wahoo McDaniel's my tag team partner? I mean, it was it was wild. It was wild. And, you know, again, I traveled. It was the first time I ever actually did anything like that. So here I was, uh, you know, just a punk kid, you know, 22 or 23 years old, you know, going to Japan for six weeks or four weeks or whatever it was the first one. And, uh, you know, I, I worked for Baba uh, three tours, and, and then uh, I don't know how I wound up switching over. I worked for Inoki also. Over in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Nice. Yeah. They, they must have heard good things. 
Well, I don't know. You know, I, I think I think it was I think it was one of the funks that booked me in uh, for Inoki. I'm pretty sure it was it was Dory Funk, uh, and and I'm not sure if it was when I was working in Texas or not. I just you know what I, I I'd be telling you a lie if I told you exactly the the chronology of it or how it happened, uh, but you know I'm pretty sure for the first time with Inoki's uh, group, uh, it was Dory Funk that booked me. And while you're over there, you're teaming with a somewhat young Hulk Hogan. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, to, to tell you the truth, what went on with that, uh, we were in a car one day leaving the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. It was Mike Cicluna, Dominic, Hogan, and I. And uh, Hogan was just getting ready to tell Vince McMahon Sr. to cram it. <laughs> I said, no, no, don't, don't do that right now. I said, don't do that. I said, listen, I'm going to Japan in, in another month. Why don't you see if you can get booked in Japan? Just tell him, I don't know what the problem was with him. I don't know if something was going on that uh, somebody wasn't happy about. And uh, a few days later, he said to me, uh, hey, listen, I'm going to go to Japan. And then Vince McMahon called me from Florida. And he said, Davey, he said, you're on that that Japan trip, I said, yes, sir, I am. Uh, he said, okay, listen, he said, uh, Hogan's going to go over there, too. He says, I kind of want you to uh, babysit him a little bit, if you don't mind. I said, you need me to babysit him? He said, well, you know, he says, you've been there a couple of times, you know, so I'd like you to uh, just kind you know, just kind of show him the way a little bit. So I did, you know, so I did. So, you know, it was no big deal, because guys did the same thing for me. Guys did the same thing for me. So, yeah, I think, I, and I, you know what? I think we tagged a few times. I think we tagged a few times over there. Uh, I, and I also think that's where I met the Iron Sheik. I think I first ran across him. He and I met, I think, at Narita Airport in Tokyo, you know, because we all walk the same. We walk, kind of walk funny because we're always in pain, and, you know, we knew who each other were. So, so we met at the airport, and they picked us up, and, uh, and zipped us into Tokyo to get our tour started. Did you foresee Hogan becoming like gigantic? You know, obviously became one of the biggest stars ever in the history of the business. Did you see that all, you know, in the Hulkster? Well, yeah, you know what? Because I was already exposed to, to the Billy Grahams and Flair, yep. you know, and, and if you had the charisma, I mean, and don't forget New York was what we used to call a big body territory. And if you were in a big body territory, uh, you know, then then uh, if you had a little bit of charisma and you had a good look, uh, you know, you could you could get over really well. And and Terry had a really good attitude, and you know why? Because he started in the territories. He started in the territories with the old timers. When he broke in, uh, he was broken in by Hiro Matsuda. I think I think Hero cracked his ankle for him, or mm-hmm. cracked his leg for him, you know, because cause Terry was kind of cutting up a little bit and and misbehaving. I mean, you didn't do that with these guys. You didn't do that with these guys. You were you were a professional wrestler. You weren't a clown. You weren't an entertainer. You were a professional athlete, and uh, you know, for for him to get over. New York was the place to do it because he had the look. But he had to learn. He, you know, he got booked with Dominic 
many, many matches in a row, and and Dominic uh, kind of held his hand and and uh, you know showed him what was going on. But yeah, you could you could see uh, that he was destined uh, with the push he was getting here. You couldn't help it. You couldn't help it. With the WWF, and obviously you know we're talking about Japan and stuff, but back to WWF. As they're kind of, you're going through your 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 time there. Is there any change that you're seeing as you're getting towards the 80s? Are you seeing more sports entertainment as you get towards the you know 80, 81, 82? Well, you know what? I don't. You probably know better than I do when uh, rock and wrestling started. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what what exactly the year was, but. You know, a few of us old guys said, okay, that's going to change things. I mean, it changed it for the better business-wise, but but it exposed things that we would have never shared. It exposed things that we would have never shared, and, and it made it more entertainment. It made it more entertainment. And, and that rubbed a lot of guys the wrong way because the guys that were still active then, you know, like myself or Dominic or Roddy, uh, you know, Greg Valentine, uh, guys like that, Bruno still around. Uh, you know, we we never considered entertainment. You know, we knew that's what we were doing. You know, and I and I did a little. You know, I used to wear pink tights with with shamrocks on them. I knew what kind of reaction it was going to get. You know, I knew what, what was going on there. Uh, but once a match started, it was serious business. You know, it was never other things involved. You know, once in a while you'd see a little angle or, or some crazy stuff go on. But we could see that, that times were changing for us. You know, I always or, say to Dominic, I always say to Dominic, Dominic, I think we were 20 years too soon. <laughs> times were changing for sure. And did you start seeing Vince McMahon Jr.'s influence as you're kind well, you, oh, he- yeah, of oh. headed, headed out there? Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt, you know, Vince Jr. Uh, was a was a completely different personality than his father. Uh, when when I was really active with them, he was a color commentator, and you know he promoted the uh, the up north towns, Portland, Bangor, stuff like that. Uh, when he started slowly to take over, you could see things were changing. Uh, you know, he did things his way. His father was more of a purist with the professional wrestling. You know, uh, I mean, I remember his father. Uh, I was I was doing a promo for for someplace. I don't remember where it was for. You know, in in one of the the, the B or the C markets, and I slipped, and I think I said, "Damn!" Boom! Cut the interview. Cut the promo right there, then and there. Cut it. He called me to the side. He said, you know, you can't do that. I said, I didn't know what I did. I said, what did I do, Mr. McMahon? He said, you can't say damn on television. Oh, you know, now I got two words for you, or then, suck it. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) You got to be kidding me. You know, you can't do that stuff. You know, back then, back then, but, you know, that's, you know, like you said, for me, I saw the changes happening. You know, I wasn't, I was sort of getting ready to finish anyway. Uh, so I wasn't as put off. Uh, but, you know, if you ever had that discussion with uh, a room 
that had Bruno and Dominic and Mike Cicluna and myself in it. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, you you might get a you might get a little different reaction than yeah, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, and it seems like for whatever reason nowadays, all those guys like Dominic, like yourself, I guess Vince Jr. kind of doesn't like guys that his dad likes. It almost seems like he almost wants to forget about those guys and focus on him. Oh, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. No, You know, although, and I know it was because of Bruno, you know, I, I got invited to uh, Bruno's induction into the WWE Hall of Fame. You know, Bruno invited Dominic and I, and we were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and to tell a little side story to that, which, you know, now, Keep in mind what I said to you. I was uh, a tremendous fan of Bruno San Martino. Uh, Bruno called me and said, cause, because I did, I did Bruno's induction into the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. I, I was the one that did his induction. And uh, I came home, I said to my wife, well, I can die tomorrow. I'll be happy. <laughs> you know, right. Yep. I, yep. I inducted Bruno, you know. But... Bruno said to me, he says, I got to tell you something. He said, it, it's really bothering me. I said, what? He said, I wanted you to do my WWE induction. I said, get out of here. Me? He said, yeah. He said, and, and Triple H said, okay, but Vince Jr. had already booked Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow. I said, I said well, and actually Arnold didn't do such a hot job. I thought it was kind of stinky, uh, but but uh, you know Bruno said I'd like you to do it. Vince, when we when we went there, you know, of course we saw Vince and, and Stephanie and uh, uh, you know uh, Mrs. McMahon. Uh, Linda has always been very nice to me and cordial, and so has Vince Jr. So has Vince Jr. Never a problem with him, never a problem. But his his ego. Uh, is the size of Texas, man. And, you know, I, I got to think there's people that could talk to him and, and disagree. I'm not sure, though. I'm not sure. And you could see his influence uh, when his father started fading out and, and being less involved. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a very noticeable change for us. It's interesting the way kind of the things happen and, you know, Vince Jr. starts to take over and Vince Sr.'s on his way out and eventually after he passes away in the early 80s. But how yep. did you exit the WWF? I, uh, let's see, how do I get out of there? Let's see. I'm trying to think. I think I, think I just kind of told him to back off my bookings. I, you know what, I, I was one of the guys that got hurt a lot. I've had, I've had 14 major orthopedic surgeries. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got, you know, I, my hips replaced, my knees are shot, my back is fused. Uh, I stopped wrestling uh, when I, on, on a spot show, I was on one of his shows and uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon in the ring. And uh, when the Achilles tendon ruptured, uh, when I realized how, you know, how terrible that was an injury, of an injury, uh, that was it. You know, I just didn't take any more bookings. I said to them, I'm done. I'm done. Only because the surgeon said to me, you're done. You know, it was, that's a really, uh, you know, now I guess they're a little more sophisticated with the surgeries. 
but you know mine not only ruptured but spaghettied and retracted up into my calf. Uh, you know I had I had quite a big operation with that. So so my career ended with a ruptured Achilles tendon in the oh, ring. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the 14 major surgeries, all the injuries. Do you think a lot of that played? a part of how hard the ring was? Because I always hear that it was like a, the old-school boxing ring. Well, it's some not, of them it's were. It's not like yeah. it is today. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of them, so, you know, it depended on where you were, man. When I first started, if you worked in Baltimore in the Civic Center, first of all, it was a 24-foot ring. That is enormous. That's really big. It slows the action right down. Slows the action right down. Uh and on top of that, the ring in Baltimore, I would have rather taken a bump on a sidewalk outside. I'm telling you, it was so hard that the fans got shortchanged. Because when we were in Baltimore, we'd, we'd say to each other, no bumps tonight, guys. No bumps. Don't do it. Don't do it. It was terrible. Then, then you'd go somewhere else. You know, depending on whose ring it was, it was great. It was great. Uh, you know, NWA, for the most part, like Florida, Florida had tremendous rings, fantastic. And and it showed with the work uh, that the guys did. You know, once again, New York, because pretty much all the time you had a full house someplace, guys got a little bit lazy. Guys got a little, for, for different reasons, you know, some of the guys were getting up in age. You know, if you worked with a, with a Mike Cicluna or Mike Pedusis, uh back then, you know, they, they didn't want to do too much. They didn't want to do too much. You know, if you worked with the Chief, well, that was, you know, all he had to do was shake his head and do his war dance. And, and you know, you got the people going. So that was easy. But some of the old timers uh, didn't want to work hard and a, and a bad ring really made it bad, really made it bad. If you went to other territories, I mean, uh, Texas, you know, I was in the Amarillo Territory, we had a great ring every night. We were flying all over the place, flying all over, giving the people a tremendous, tremendous show. Now, as we start to wind it down and head towards the finish, I know we talked about a little bit of Florida, a little bit of Texas, <laughs> a little bit of uh, the central states in uh, Missouri and stuff in Kansas City. What are some of your favorite matches as far as some WWF matches? Because I think so many people remember you from your time spending several, more than several years in the WWF. Do you have some favorite matches? Well, you know what? I used to like working with Johnny Rods. Uh, I used to like working with Johnny. Pete Sanchez was a fantastic worker. Fantastic worker. Uh, Manny Soto, great worker. Uh, Vince Sr. had Bugsy McGraw and I tagged up. Uh, quite a quite a bit. <clears throat> so I'm actually sitting up in my loft right now, and I'm looking at a poster uh, that my wife allowed me to put up. <laughs> she she made me take a lot down, but there's one uh, uh, from the Ocean Beach Auditorium in New London, Connecticut, and on top was Putsky and Spiro Sarion, uh, and under the the semi main was Bugsy and I against Kevin Sullivan and Haystacks Calhoun. Uh, so I, you know, I like tagging with Bugsy. Uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan was a really easy guy to work with. Uh, 
Putsky was a hard guy to work with, you know, because Putsky actually thought he was Ivan Putsky. You know, <laughs> huh. I used to say to him, I used to say to him, listen, you're just plain old Joe Bednarski. Just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Uh, so they were great to work with. The chief was always always fun to work with. The chief was always fun to work with. Uh, I actually worked one match against Jimmy Valiant. Mm, nice. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and we made a bet. I said to him, I said, uh, Jimmy, I said, I'm going to make you a baby face tonight. He said, no way, Daddy-O. He says, that's not happening. I said, okay, $10. I said, let's let Mike Cicluna hold it. Gave Mike Cicluna $10, and before we were done, they loved Jimmy Valiant. But he's easy to love. I mean, the guy is the guy is fantastic. He's fantastic. You know, so it was fun. It was fun uh, getting to work with some of those guys. You know, the, the other territories, uh, you know, you had, uh, you had the Funks and the Briscoes and uh, you know, it was great. I mean, Puerto Rico was a great place uh, to work. Uh, so, you know what? I, I was I was so fortunate to uh, to be able to, like I told you in the beginning, work with guys that I watched that were the real legends of professional wrestling. Do you have a favorite territory you worked? Would it be New York? Uh, well, yeah, I guess New York would be would be uh, one of my favorites. I mean, there were other places that I went. You know, I used to love going to Albuquerque. It was a great town, uh, uh, you know. I liked, yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think you hit it. I think New York, New York was the place, because you, you know, you had a big building every week. You had a big building every week. You had the Garden. You had Boston, uh, Philadelphia Spectrum, you had uh, Montreal and Toronto, both big buildings. Baltimore, big building. Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, New Haven, Hartford. You know, you're always in a big place once a week, and they were always filled, and they were always filled, and and the New York fans were real, intelligent, uh, invested wrestling fans. They didn't want nonsense. They wanted to see a good show, and they got it. Now, as far as you, we talked about WWF a lot, obviously WWF, Central States, Western States, Puerto Rico, Japan. What would you say is the lasting legacy of Davey O'Hanna? What's kind of like when, when, the, when it's all said and done, what are the people going to look back on and see the stamp and the legacy of Davey O'Hanna? Well, you know what? I hope, I hope they uh, realize and they know that whether it was Madison Square Garden or the Hereford, Texas Bull Barn <laughs> or the Roberto Clemente Stadium in Puerto Rico, uh, or any little tiny arena, Sedalia, Missouri fairgrounds, that I gave them the same product every place I went. Every place I went. Because in my mind, the people that, and, and I never, ever called the fans marks. And, the, and the, the real guys in the business never did that. We referred to the fans as the people. Uh, I said to myself, these people are spending their money to come and see us. The least I could do was give them 100%. Never cheat them. And I hope uh, I hope I entertain people by doing that. 
Now, as far as like social media plugs, I know you said you're not really big on social media. Sometimes you check Facebook and, and stuff like that. But what if some of the real fans, you know, the golden era, the golden age fans, what if some fans wanted to kind of reach out? Do you have, you know, an access to the fans as far as anything social media-wise? Yeah, I mean, you know, they can they can look for Davey O'Hannon on Facebook. You know, and I answer questions all the time. People ask me, uh, uh, you know, what was it like, uh, you know, working with so-and-so. Some guy said, said, oh, wow, I saw you and Johnny Rods uh, do 30 minutes in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, he said, you tore that. He said, nobody could follow it. Nobody could follow it. Okay, well, you know what, there was... I'm sure there was a lot of really talented guys on that card. Johnny and I weren't the only two. But Johnny and I made sure that that 30 minutes that we had was the best we had. Was the best we had. So, you know, listen, and, and I always tell people, you know what, years ago, you never sold a picture. I, I never sold a picture until somebody asked me to go to an autograph show, and I still didn't sell a picture. Somebody paid me to go to the show, and they were selling the pictures. Um, right. you know, we'd, get, yep. we'd get pictures made, and somebody say, hey, can I get a picture? Yeah, sure, here you go. I'd, I'd pay to get them made. I'd give somebody a picture. I just sent I just sent the guy, uh, I think in Alabama, sent me a message on Facebook. Uh, he said, geez, I saw you, uh, you know, when you worked in Georgia. I saw you in uh, uh, Texas. Uh, you know, I could never ha- get access to come and see you. Uh, can I buy a picture? I said, no, you can't buy a picture. Can't buy a picture. I said, what you could do is you can give me an address, and I'll send you some pictures. Oh you know, wow! So, nice. And he he said, well, what about? I said, there's no what about. There's no what about. You're the, you're the fans. I appreciated the fans. That is a great attitude to have. And do you have any upcoming like signings and stuff that you'll be doing? Autograph signings? Yeah, I actually do. I I'm, I'll be in. Uh, I believe Freehold, New Jersey, on April 11th. Uh, I will be in Woodbridge or Island, New Jersey, on April 18th, and I'll be in Philadelphia on June. I don't know, June something, uh, at the 2300 Arena. Uh, the 80s Con in in Freehold is a pretty big one. Uh, a fellow named Bud Carson is bringing me up there. Uh, Bud Carson is, is sort of legendary. He had a wrestling world store in Allentown, Pennsylvania that was that's full of stuff that you'd love oh, to yeah. see. Oh yeah. Yeah, Bud full is a uh, Bud is a friend. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bud is a Bud is a great guy. Bud is a fantastic guy. So, uh uh he's got uh, uh me going up there on the 11th and I think Manny Soto is coming up with me too. Wow. I nice. think Manny and it's very seldom that Manny does this stuff. Nice. Uh, but, Manny and but, I I'm sorry. Manny and I went up for Bud uh, in Allentown not too long ago. Awesome. Wow, that's pretty damn cool. A lot of old school guys, but let me correct you. It's actually April 11th, you'll be in Philadelphia at the 2300 Arena. April 18th, you'll be in Freehold. I think you got that right. And then uh, June 20th, you'll be in uh, Woodbridge, New Jersey for Legends of the Ring. So you got a busy. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. You got a busy 2020. Oh, my goodness. You're going to be busy in 2020. (laughs) Well. So you know, I'll look forward. I hope the, I hope the people uh, come and see us. And uh, you know, somebody somebody brought a, a, a book in, la- in the last show I did for Bud. Uh, a couple walked up and they opened a magazine from Japan, and it had a picture of me in that magazine with a belt on. And I said, "What in the world is that? Where did you get that?" They said, "Well, you had the Asiatic Championship belt when you were 
one of your tours in Japan. I didn't even remember it. I said, you're kidding me. No, would you sign it? Yeah, I signed it. I said, I never saw it. How about that? that? I said, well, very cool. You know, yeah, it was really neat. It was really neat. So, you know, hopefully the people will come and see us. Uh, you know, I love uh, seeing them. And, uh, you know, when I see them, I'm not a heel. So, so it's okay. <laughs> we, can, we can talk. Different times. Uh, that that yeah. is for sure. All right. Well, Mr. O'Hannon, thank you so much. It's been an honor to get you on, and I appreciate you staying on as long as you did. Really uh, well, awesome stuff from a uh, WWF legend. Well, thank you very much. It's great. Um, I'm really flattered and humbled that uh, uh, you thought that this time spent is uh, is well spent. And, uh, you know, look forward. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.